Hey, this is Pastor Sean Beatty from Clovis Hills Community Church. We're so glad you're listening to our podcast. If you want more information about the church, go to www.clovishills.com or you can download our app in your iTunes or Google Play Store. Enjoy the podcast. I can tell the heat's gotten to this half of the room. <laughs> like everyone over there was like, woo! And this, like 10 of you were like, the rest of you are like, I need to be underwater right now. Last night um, at the Saturday night service, there was a couple. They, they were brand new, not just to Clovis Hills, but to Fresno. Like they moved here this weekend from L.A. And I was like, I just gave them a hug. I go, it's going to be okay. And then I whispered in their ear, in four months. <laughs> oh, man. And, and then I got up and I was ragging on how hot it was. I was like complaining. And some lady in the crowd was like, it's not that bad. And I said, you're right. Around 4 o'clock, the wind blows in. And with the wind chill, it feels like 104. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, I was drove down from Dinky Creek y- yesterday afternoon. I went by um, a ranch and all the cows were putting out evaporated milk. That's how hot it was. I'm just letting you know. I mean... A tree was fighting over two dogs. That's how hot it was. Thank you. I'll be here all week. How's your steak? Anyway, so enough with the heat jokes. Okay. We know it's hot. We know it's hot. Hey, um, before we get into the sermon, I do want to plug something. I just think it's that important. If you are a father with children in your home right now, we have a program called Alpha Male. I would encourage you looking into Alpha Male. It goes through the whole school year. And it goes, uh, it's every Wednesday night, they, you know, they meet for an hour and a half, and it's a discipleship program. They break just like the school does for winter break and spring break and things like that. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great way to help you grow in your faith and disciple you. And there's uh, kind of three segments to the, to the, to the cohort. You end up um, learning how, how to be a godly man, a godly husband, and a godly father. And some people have taken it that weren't husbands, but they were hoping to be one one day, so they figured they'd get ahead of the game and, and be a, god, a godly pre-husband. So ladies, look out for those guys. And then, um, and then some of them didn't have kids yet, but they wanted to learn to be a godly father as well. So I encourage you, um, look, look into the Alpha Male. And the way you can do that is take the flyer in there and put your name on it and drop it in the offering. We'll contact you. This doesn't mean you signed up for it. It just means you're interested and you want info on it. And we would love to um, answer any questions and maybe um, talk, talk with you about it. So fill that out. The other thing I think that is really good about Alpha Male, and I, I didn't say this last service, but I'm going to say it, is, um, men, you know this. By the time you hit about 35, you become the friendless American male. It, it is. It's not that you're, like, unfriendly. It's that you're too busy working your job, living your marriage, chasing your kids around, and you and all your friends are doing that, and you just, like, that connection with other dudes isn't there anymore. Um, I can tell you alpha male is one way that you can get that connection again. And uh, they, the cohort, by the time it's at the end, they've become a, a, a band of brothers. And they, I see guys in alpha male all the time now on Sunday morning. They just walk by each other like, you know, kind of thing. So I encourage you, drop it in the offering, and um, we'd love to contact you and just answer any questions and see, see how that is for you. So, um... I got, I got to tell you, I was uh, listening to the Malawi group and, and how they receive Americans. And it's funny, when you as an American, you leave the country and you go to another country, um, it just depends on what country you go to if you're received well or not, 
right? Um, a lot of countries in Africa, they like you. They're like, oh, Americans. And it's like a curiosity, and they just want to come and see you, and they're like, you're so white. You know, what's wrong with you? Um, and, you know, um, I remember going to the Philippines, and in the Philippines, they love Americans in the Philippines. You know, you walk in any store, they're like, hello, sir. You know, they're just like all about you. And then other countries you go to, I went to India, not so much, right? Um, I've been to... Uh, Eastern Europe, not so much, okay? And, and that, that's how it works. But uh, I remember after communism fell, in, uh, I had visited Eastern Europe. I had done a missions trip there. I was there all summer. And um, during that time in history, they were crazy for Americans. Like you just kind of walked in and if you had a pair of Levi's on, hundreds of people would come talk to you because you had Levi's and they couldn't get those. And they'd offer you hundreds of dollars for them. And I'm like, well, I'll trade you pants. Let's do this. <laughs> 200 bucks? Sure. Um, but I, I remember we would, we would, I was in this l- little band. We weren't even that good. And we'd pull up into a town square anywhere in Eastern Europe. And we only knew three or four songs. I'd pull my guitar out and I'd just start playing Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. And all of a sudden, thousands of people would gather around like we were, you know, like rock stars. It was amazing. They were, America! And, and part of it is we were representatives of America. Now, when I was in Europe during that time, we had a guy that led our team. And um, I didn't know this. I thought he was our guide. Um, he, but he'd only been to Europe once before me. And everywhere we're going, he's telling these incredible stories of all these things we're seeing. We're taking pictures, and he just captivated us. And I remembered a lot of these stories. And then I met him um, 20 years later. And we were talking about it. I said, man, I remember so many of the things you explained to us at the cathedrals and all around, you know, Europe. And he just started laughing. He goes, yeah, I made half of those up. I go, what? You know, and I explained. I go, what about the one? We're in Czechoslovakia. And because we got in Czechoslovakia and there was this big stone heart in the middle of the road. And he gathered us around. And he's like, guys, I don't know if you know, but it is illegal. It's punishable by of prison for spitting in public in Czechoslovakia. And we're like, really? He goes, but here's the thing. This stone heart is the one place in this country that you can legally spit in public because they buried their most notorious criminal under it. And they want the cars to run it over and they want you to spit on it. So I have somewhere in my collection, I have a picture of me and like 10 other high school students and we're all hanging over the heart spitting on it. I was like, what about that one? He goes, yeah, I made it up. I have no idea what it was. I just thought it was cool. He goes, consider them parables. I said, they're not parables, they're lies. You sit on a throne of lies. Anyways, we're starting a series called Parables today. And we're going to be going through the summer over some of the parables that Jesus talked about. Now, I, I want to give you a, a preface of how this, is, this sermon's going to go. Because um, every Saturday night, I get a group of people and they'll come and tell me to help me be better for you guys on Sunday morning. And um, one of the things they told me is they said, man, we weren't sure where you were going for a long time. And then finally you turned the corner and you got to the parable. So I need you to understand something. Before I can get to the parable we're going to talk about today, I need to help you understand the why behind parables. What Jesus was talking about and why he was using them. And once you understand that, it will make the whole series much easier to understand the parables. And what their purpose was, if does that make sense. Are you guys capishing what I'm saying? Okay, so if you have your outline, well, actually, let, let me explain the why parables first, okay, for you, before we get to the outline. Um, see, so in, in, in the, we're going to read from Matthew 13 in a little bit. It'll be a while, though, okay? Um, in the gospel narratives, 
by the time we get to the parable we're going to read, Jesus has been going all over the Judean countryside. He's been healing people. He's been doing miracles. He's been speaking to incredibly large groups. And you have to understand something about the world at that time. They never saw large groups of people together, especially in the rural Judean countryside. You know, for us, we go to the St. Mart Center, you can see 15,000 people in one room. You come to church, you can see 1,000 people. You can see lots of people, okay? If you lived in a rural, ancient society, you... If a hundred people showed up to the synagogue, it was like, oh my gosh, the energy was palpable. I've never seen that many people. It was that kind of thing. And here comes Jesus on the scene, and now thousands of people are coming to see him. I, I don't know if you know, when he fed the 5,000, that wasn't just 5,000 people. Because during that time, they only counted men. Only men counted when they did the count. So if you count the men, the boo, and the shorty as well, that's about 15,000 people. That's a big crowd. Now I'm going to translate for some of you, a boo and a shorty is a wife and a child. Okay, so anyway... From the streets of Fresno. Anyways, um, <laughs> these large crowds are coming to see him. And he's gaining all this notoriety. And the religious elite of the day are jealous. They're, they're super jealous. It's funny, the, the protesters told one our security today. They said, well, we're, they said, why are you coming to our church and doing this? You don't even know what we believe. And they're like, well, you guys are the biggest church in town. I was like, awesome. Tell um, Pastor Brad and Dale that. We're not by far, but whatever. I'll take it. <laughs> you know, and, and the, 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 the religious elite were super jealous of what's going on with Jesus. And they, they started coming out publicly and saying, listen, we know he's healing people. We can't deny that. We've talked to them. We know he's feeding all these people. We know he's doing all these incredible works and this teaching. But we want you to know something. The power he's doing it under is under the power of Satan. He's not from God, he's from Satan. And they began to publicly denounce Jesus and say he's from Satan. And in that moment, Jesus drew a line in the sand and he began to speak to people differently. He started speaking now in parables and he started talking about the kingdom of God. There's a lot of reasons why he spoke in parables. I'll give you one example why. When you speak in a parable, they can't, people can't nail you down on what you said because you just told a story. Okay? So um, a great example, a few years ago I was on the radio in San Diego and um, it was a very, like, kind of super, very secular um, show. And they were, they were, you know, they knew some of my views were going to be counter to theirs. And they, were, they wanted to ask these questions and kind of, like, make me look like an idiot. And they have control of the mic, too. So when I want to chime in, I can't. And, um, you know, so, but I went on the show anyways. And I remember that, you know, the first question right away, they, they, they went right to the, Right at it. And they're like, well, Pastor Beattie, we, you know, what are your views on gay marriage? You know, and they wanted to get into the whole homosexuality thing, which is super controversial. And it starts a fight instantly. So I Jesus juked them. I went, okay. It, let me tell you what I did to them. I, I said, well, once upon a time, there was someone incredibly evil. And he wrote a computer virus that infected every computer on the planet. Every computer on the planet was malfunctioning. They were all malfunctioning in a different way, though. And they, could, they, they, they couldn't operate the way they were created. They couldn't do what they were created to do because of this virus. And every, every, every one had it. And then someone wrote the great antivirus that if you would download it, it would wipe it free. And you could 
the computer could become what it was created to be. It would take a while for the virus to, the effects of the virus to go away, but the computer could become who it was created to be. So that's what I think. And they had that Scooby-Doo look, like, huh? You know, they're like, what are you saying? And I, exactly. And this is part of why Jesus started speaking in parables. There's other reasons, too. He's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, God's people are here. The world is here. And there's a difference. And he was drawing a delineation. You're going to find it in most of the parables. He's drawing a line in, in the sand, and here's what's going on. But here's the other thing you have to know about the parables. And if you have your outline, pull it out, because you have to. I, I want you to fill in number one. Is He talks about the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? And this is essential that you know what the kingdom of heaven is before we dive into the, to, to the parables, okay? The kingdom of heaven, Matthew, when Matthew says the kingdom of heaven, he's saying it, it's synonymous with what Mark, Luke, and John say. They say the kingdom of God. So anytime you see the kingdom of God in the Bible or the kingdom of heaven in the Bible, know that it's the same thing. Matthew just used a different word. But it's the same concept, okay? And G it says that Jesus came to preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, right? So Jesus began to tell these parables, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And then he'd tell the parable. And, he, and before we read the parable that we're going to read today, you have to understand, Jesus had just told a parable, and then he quoted the Old Testament, and they asked him, why are you telling these parables? And he said, oh, because for some people, they can... They can see, but they'll never perceive. Some people, they can hear what I'm saying, but they'll never understand. And that's why for some, the parables are a mystery. And God hasn't revealed to them yet what it means. But for those, those, those of us that God has revealed it, I want you to understand why. And the reason he tells these parables is to help you know what the kingdom of God is like. Now, if I were to give you a sermon on the kingdom of God, I would need to give about three to do it justice so that we would understand. We don't got that kind of time, okay? So I found a video. It's six minutes long. It's brilliant. The illustrations and everything do what I could not do. So I want you just to fix your eyes on this, and you're going to learn in six minutes. You can take notes on it if you want on what the kingdom of God is. So go ahead and look at the screen. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning, where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity 
dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world, and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out, and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is 
What happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. So hopefully that, that gives you a better understanding of, of what the kingdom of God is. It's wherever God is ruling. So there's little pockets all over the world where God is in charge, where God is ruling. But what we do know is this world right now, the Bible is very clear. It, the world as we speak, that's full of sin and injustice, and, and the Bible calls it the world, is ruled by Satan. It says the, the prince of the power of the air. And here's what we ha you, you have to understand. Number two in your outline, if you, you want to write it down. Number two is, is, is very clear in these parables. It's to be a Christian means to make Jesus your king. And my friend Rick, he's going to come out right now. And he's going to read from uh, Matthew chapter 13. And I would love it if you were able to, if you would stand in honor of God's word. And we'll read from the word of the Lord together. From God's word. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted, they formed heads. Then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. That is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So num number two is to be a Christian means you need to make Jesus your king. You have to understand that. And what, when you do that, what you're saying is, I used to live in the world, the world where I was in charge, where I called the shots, and now I am stepping away from that and I want to live where Jesus is in charge, where Jesus is in charge of my life. And I, I need you to understand something. The, Jesus is really clear in these parables that you can't live in between. There's no like, well, sometimes I like it, you know, you know I, I, I want to be, I want to have a dual citizenship. I want to be a citizen of the world and I want to be a citizen of God's kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is, no, you're one or the other and you have to decide. And if you don't decide, if you're in limbo, you've decided already. You've decided that you're part of the world. 
Because the Bible says this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean, for all have sinned? Does that mean Sean has sinned? A lot. Okay? All of us. It doesn't matter. The, the, the Pope has sinned. Your grandma has sinned. I have sinned. Uh, it doesn't, no matter how holy you think a person is, it says everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what that means is we are born in the world, and until we trust what Jesus did on the cross, we'll never see the kingdom of God. It'll remain a mystery to us. It'll make no sense. None of that. As a matter of fact, Jesus... In John chapter 3, he's talking with a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is like a really religious guy. He's like got it together. He, he talks right. He walks right. He dresses right. He does it all the way you're supposed to. And he appears to be very godly. But what Jesus points out to him is actually he's like one of the weeds. I want you to think about this. The good farmer sowed the wheat. That's God. An enemy came, the bad farmer, and he sowed weeds. In the, in the ancient world, you have to understand this. That was a common practice in farming. If you had a rival farmer, you'd go out at night and you'd ruin their crops. As a matter of fact, the, the Jews did this so much and the Palestinians did this so much in that area, the Romans had to create an own special law that you could go, not go out and sow weeds among your, your, your rival's crops. The weeds they would sow, you could go there today and see them. It's a weed called bearded darnel. Some of you were reading the title of the sermon. They're like, oh, he's going to talk about pot. No, I'm not. Um, I just like to get you all upset. So... Bearded Darnell, you have to understand this. When it grows with wheat, it looks exactly like wheat the whole time. And it's really hard to tell the difference between what's a weed and what's a wheat. And the only way you know is when it is at full bloom. Because at full bloom, you get the head of wheat comes out and you know it's wheat. And the, 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 the imposter doesn't produce any fruit. It doesn't produce anything. So you, Jesus has this conversation with a guy who looks very godly and, and, and the guy comes to him at nighttime because he's a religious guy and Jesus is very controversial and he doesn't want anyone to know about it. And he says, listen, I know what you've been doing is from God and I want to know more. And Jesus says this to him in verse 3. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, that's a certain type of Christian. That's a certain denomination of Christian, born-again Christians. It is not. I, I need you to understand that. What Jesus is not talking about, you can't see the kingdom of heaven unless you're part of a certain denomination or you're part of a certain group of Christians. What he's saying is, look, let's read further. He says, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. But you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. See, Jesus was even telling Nicodemus, you can look right, you can act right, but that doesn't mean you're part of my kingdom. As a matter of fact, you might be a faker. So, that leads me to number three. What's, what's the other thing that Jesus is trying to teach? Because number two is, you got to decide. 
Am I going to be part of God's kingdom or am I going to be part of my own? I love what Johnny Cash said. You can have it all, my empire of dirt. He understood that the end of his life is just everything he had accomplished and built is going to turn to dust. And he stepped into God's kingdom. So number two is that. You got to pick. Not deciding means you decided. You've chosen your own way. Number three is this. What Jesus is trying to teach us is there has to be patience in God's kingdom. I, had a, um, I have a mentor, and he, uh, is, he's a retired farmer. And I remember one day I was early on while I was here at Clovis Hills, I was really frustrated because the church wasn't growing the way I wanted it to, and they weren't really getting everything I was saying. And, um, you, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, you're cute. Um, that was all I was getting from people. I was like, yeah, keep going. Finish your sermon so Steve can come back next week. And um, I remember I was telling him it was, it, it was kind of frustrating. And he said, well, he goes, part of the problem is you pastors are dumb. <laughs> and, and I'm friends with them, so I knew exactly. I knew he, was, he wasn't insulting me. He was just kind of getting after me. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, here's the thing. All you pastors think that the church runs like a machine, and it's all a bunch of cogs that turn perfectly. And if, if you put all the cogs in the right place, it'll put out a disciple. He goes, first and foremost, that's not biblical and it's stupid. He goes, I'm a farmer. I know how this works. Farming takes patience. You throw seed, you trust the process. The seed will grow. Not all the seed you throw grows. But if you're patient and you trust the process, there will be a harvest. You want it to be a machine so it'll come out real quick. But it's not how God works in people. You have to trust the process. And I went, bing, there's wisdom from an old farmer. So here's the thing. Um, An immature Christian, you have mature Christians and you have immature Christians. That guy, my mentor, is a very mature Christian. Now, it's not because he's old. I need you to understand that. I've met many Christians that have been, they've been Christians for 50 years, and they're still incredibly spiritually immature so, so age doesn't make, give you spiritual maturity. It can, it should, but it doesn't guarantee it. I've met people that were young in the faith that were incredibly spiritually mature. I'll give you a great example. When I was um, first, I, when I, you know, I was a youth pastor at this church, and I remember I was going to ask uh, my wife Kelly out on a date. I, we hadn't gone out. I kind of liked her, and I wanted to get to know her more. And I remember, before I asked her out, though, I knew, like, well, you work for the church. You're, you're a youth pastor. She's a brand-new Christian. You should probably go get permission from the pastor, make sure you guys aren't equally, unequally yoked. He might be like, hey, slow down. Let her grow in her faith more, and then you can ask her out later. So I went to him, and I said, hey, I, I kind of like this girl. I'm thinking of asking her out, but I know she's a brand-new Christian. She's only been a Christian for about a month, and I don't want to, you know, be unequally yoked. I want to, you know, make sure everything Thing's cool. And he just started laughing. <laughs> he goes, I go, what's so funny? He goes, oh, you can go out with her, Sean. I'm all, I can? He goes, oh, yeah, she's going to be more spiritually mature than you in six months. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> and I was totally insulted, but he was totally right. He was. Now, an immature Christian doesn't like patience. They don't like the process. They struggle trusting. That's why an immature Christian will go, but I prayed, I asked God for this, and he hasn't given it to me. So therefore I am mad at him, so I'm taking my toys and I'm going home. 
I have this habit in my life and I've asked God to take it away from me and he hasn't taken it away yet. So I'm mad at him. I asked God for this financial breakthrough in my life. It hasn't happened yet. I asked God for this job. It hasn't happened yet. I asked God for my spouse to become a Christian. It hasn't happened yet. And they, they want it instantly. They want what they want and they want it now and they want God to give it to them when they ask. And here's what I need you to understand. That is not how God works. See, the beauty of it is, I, I don't know if you know this, but, but sometimes the thing you want isn't the thing that you need. It would not grow you the way you need to grow. Imagine if you gave your kids everything they wanted every time they asked in every moment. What kind of humans would they grow up to be? Maybe... Part of your maturity is learning to trust God, trust that God has your best interest for you, that he knows your whole story, he knows the end of your story, and you need to trust the process. You don't see farmers standing outside in the fields, they throw a seed in the ground, they go, okay, grow! And some people, from, from some, some, some walks of faith, they think like the louder you yell and the more excited you get, it's like they think they're generating faith. They're faking faith is what they're doing. And then they just do it louder and they go, okay, go! And then their friends say, oh, you must not have enough faith. See, there's no fruit. Can I, can I explain something? If you will get this today, it'll be the best thing you could hold on to. Part of your maturity as a Christian is learning to trust God when you don't understand what's going on. Trust is the greatest gift you could give God. God is enamored with your trust. He wants your trust so badly he sent Jesus to come and get it. You have to understand that. Some of you, you're, you're pretty wealthy, pretty successful. And um, you could give, scratch a check and give a great gift to God. And please do. But here's the thing. I want you to understand this, though. Listen. As great as that gift is, it pales in comparison to what God really wants from you. And it's to trust him and trust what he said. And that he's going to finish what he started in you. Some of you, you're like, oh, I have, you know, I have this great faith. I, you know, I read my Bible every day. I pray every day. I go to, I'm in a growth group. I tithe. I go to church. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking Christianese now. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Saved by the blood of the Lamb. Isn't God good? You know, all that. I, I've got it now. And God is looking at you and he's saying, that's awesome. Thank you. Great. But do you know what a greater gift would be? Your trust. Would you trust me? This morning... I was backstage with the band and the tech team, and we pray every morning before church starts. And um, one of the young guys, Scotty, in the, in the band, he got up and he gave just a quick devotional. And he read, and I just thought it was so apropos. It totally fit what I was talking about today. He read from John 16, And in John 16, 33, Jesus gives you a great promise. He says, in this world, you will have great trouble. I'm just here to encourage you guys. Go be the church. Right? Look at your neighbor and go, you're, you're going to have trouble. Not your trouble. You're going to have trouble. Because he was right. He said, in this world, you will have great trouble. But then he says, but if you believe enough, you'll be happy and life will be great and it'll all go away. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't. 
He says, but if you have a lot of faith and you give a lot of money and you go to church a lot, then your problems all go away. He doesn't say that at all. He says, in this world, I promise you, you will have trouble, but take courage. Be brave because I am with you. And what he's saying is, I will walk with you through that trouble. He's not saying, I will let you hover over the trouble. I will go through it with you. And I will do something in you as you go through it. And a mature Christian is one that says, God, I don't understand why this is happening, what's going on. I don't know why you're allowing this to happen. I don't know why you won't deliver me from this habit in my life or or why you won't, I I was hurt by this person and why you won't smite them. Um, All of those things. I don't understand it. But I'm going to trust the process. I'm going to trust the process that you're still on the throne because I live in your kingdom now. And if I'm in your kingdom, you're on the throne. So, you know, they did a, um, in the New York Times, I read an article about uh, waiting and they talked about how Americans hate waiting. Anyone here struggle with patience? Show of hands. It's a few of us, right? <laughs> um, and um, there, there was a, a, a Thing that happened at the, the Houston airport. And the Houston airport was getting this incredible amount of complaints, more than normal, about how long people had to wait to get their baggage at the baggage carousel, right? And, and, and when you go to get your baggage, you're ready to get off the plane. You're off the plane, you're ready to go home or go to the destination you're going to. And it feels like it's, you're waiting six hours for your luggage, doesn't it? Sometimes it just feels like forever. And that thing's going around. And everyone's bag is on there but yours. Even the dude that doesn't even have a bag, he's got a box that he's duct taped a handle on. He gets his before me. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. It feels like an eternity. Well, they did a study. They studied all the airports. They figured out that the average wait at an airport is somewhere between six and seven minutes, okay? At the Houston airport, though, it was taking somewhere between seven to eight minutes, to, uh, up to nine minutes to get their luggage, and they were getting this incredible amount of complaints. So they tried to speed the process up. And they sped the process up by about 15 seconds. They couldn't get it any faster. They started calling other airports. How long does it take you? And they all kind of came to the conclusion that, it, you know, it, it takes somewhere between um, seven and nine minutes to get the bags from the plane to the carousel. That's what they all were. But why were we getting so many complaints, the Houston Airport Authority was asking. Well, they started working with some sociologists, and they started studying how people wait. And one sociologist had a brilliant idea to fix it. It had nothing to do with the process of how to get the bag there. He said, I I think the baggage carousel is too close to where people are getting off the plane. What if we move the baggage carousel to the whole other side of the the airport and they've got to walk a couple minutes. It's still going to take us seven to nine minutes to get the baggage there, but it's going to feel like a shorter wait when they get there. Because what they realized about human beings is that if you occupy your mind, you occupy yourself with something, waiting doesn't feel so bad. Now here's the lesson I want you to learn from that. Some of us, we've been waiting on God to come through in some area of our life. We've been waiting for him to do something. And I want you to know something. It probably feels long and arduous. And one of the reasons it feels long and arduous is probably because you don't have a ministry. And if you had a ministry that you were doing, it would take your mind off the waiting and you could get to God's business of what he has for you today. You're focusing on what he has for your future But he has something for you today, and he wants you to serve him. So maybe getting out of the blue chair and serving in a ministry might be the thing that that helps you with that weight. So here's the thing. 
real Christians, they realized they were planted by God. If you're planted by something, do you have a choice where you're planted? No. Do you have a choice how fast you grow? No. Do you have a choice how much fruit you produce? No. It, you know, that, that's all about where the, 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 the great farmer has planted you and, 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 and put you. But you do have a choice in the manner. Will you be part of the wheat or will you be part of the weeds? Because the truth of the matter is, if you, you walk around our city, if you're not like culturally Muslim or you're an atheist or culturally Buddhist or whatever, everyone in the city says they're a Christian. But the truth of the matter is, according to the story, we know that not everyone is. Some people look like a Christian, but they're nothing but weeds. And the patience, some of you, you're a Christian. God has worked in your life. But you need to trust that he's going to continue to. So this morning, really, there's, there's two, two things that have to happen. For some of you, today's the day. If you don't know if you're the weed or the weeds, I had a guy come forward Saturday night after church. And he said, Pastor, I'm scared to death. I don't know. I, I think I might be a weed. And I said, well, why? And he goes, well, I'm just scared to death. I just know I sin a lot. And, and I, I don't want to be one of those. And I said, well, have you prayed to receive Christ? He goes, yeah, I do it every week. And I was like, well, I go, the fact that you're scared to death probably shows that you're not a weed. That you're part of the weed. And, and the fact that you, you, you actually care probably shows that you want to be in God's kingdom. And he goes, I do, I do. And I say, well, well you're there. And he goes, but, but I sin a lot. Well, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I live in God's kingdom. But you know what happens with Pastor Sean? While I'm in God's kingdom, I look over at the other kingdom of the world and I go, oh, that looks kind of fun. And I go over and I live in the kingdom of the world for a minute. And, I, and, and I'm there for a bit. And then I feel guilty. You know why I feel guilty? Because Jesus, I just dragged him over here where he doesn't belong. And he'll wait while I sin, and I sin, and I sin. And then finally he'll look at me and say, you done? How's that feel? I feel like crap. Come back to where you belong. When I was over here, Jesus never lets go of me. It's the same with you. Because once you choose that citizenship, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, it can never be taken away from you. Even you can't take it away from you. Because God has planted you now. And you're one of his. And I want you to know that. So for some of you, today's the day you decide to step across the line. If you're not sure, you need to receive Christ today. Step into his kingdom. Jesus said this in, John, or in, in uh, Revelation 3.20. He said, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone will listen, I will come in. What he meant by that was, I, the, the wind of my spirit is blowing on you. That's what you're feeling in your heart right now. And if you would open it to let me come in and forgive you of your sins, I could make you the person you were created to be. And you could step into that kingdom, away from, from your, your own kingdom, the kingdom of dirt, as Johnny Cash said. For some of you today, it's a whole nother thing. You've, you've, you've made that choice. You've stepped into that. And you're, you're struggling, waiting on something. There's some, something happening that, you know, you've got a, a habit in your life you can't break. You've got a hurt that's, that's capsizing your faith. You're waiting for some kind of breakthrough in your life. 
And I want you to know something, that God loves you so much, he's not mad at you because of that habit. He's not mad at you because of, of, of any of those things going on in your life. All he is saying is, trust me, trust the process, because what I have begun in you, I will finish, and you can count on it. That's the good news. And God has more for your life than you could ever imagine. So I want to give you a moment with God. Wherever you're at, we're all in kind of a different spiritual space. But the good news is God is here right now. He's among us. So I want you to just take a deep breath, close your eyes, and be in his presence for a moment.